Morgan, Guillaume Rete, and I have been friends for some time. We share a mutual respect and enjoy our time together discussing, designing, and debating board games. We've argued about the United States and France and world affairs, greatest empires, and mechanisms in coin designs. Much of the development of Liberty or Death in the early stages of Pendragon occurred in parallel. We spoke often about the role of the French, victory conditions, and mechanics. We're both proud parents and have wives that love us and tolerate our hobby. Morgan and I are more alike than we are different. In early 2018, Morgan contacted me and explained that she was coming out as a trans woman. I was immediately sympathetic to the challenges she faced in her personal life, social life, and professional life. I was excited about her prospects for a happier life, but I was also sad that she would face a skeptical world that's often unkind. I couldn't imagine what she must feel. I was sympathetic, but wanted to be empathetic. The unfortunate truth is that I've not encountered individuals in transition that I knew well enough to hear their story and see their challenges. Morgan's challenges made me realize the gaps in my knowledge through the challenges in my empathy. My sage daughter explained that perhaps my standard of empathy was set too high. If we set a standard of empathy so high that we need to feel the same feelings, we may never be empathetic. That shook me off the point I'd been caught on. Her point is that if I expect to be empathetic only when I fully feel as my friend feels, I can never really be empathetic. She gave me permission to feel empathy and for it to grow as I seek to understand more. Perhaps seeking that understanding is where true empathy lies. It was great having Morgan at the San Diego Historical Games Convention because it was an opportunity for me to understand. Morgan was patient and navigated me through my blind spots. I monitored that she was open with me and willing to discuss her transition on this podcast. <laughs> Morgan Guillaume Rete studied Latin and Greek in high school in France as she contemplated a career as a historian or archaeologist. Instead, she went for an engineering degree, graduating from Suplec, one of France's top engineering schools, in 1993, with degrees in electrical engineering with major in theoretical computer science. She was an ensign first class in the French Navy and later got an MBA in Luzon, Switzerland. Morgan has lived in France, UK, Dubai, Switzerland, the Republic of California, and Quebec, and is now the general manager of FSG Technologies, a venture developing an innovative steam generation technology. Her passion for history, especially ancient history, and the influence of her grandfather drove her toward books and eventually war games. Her first true war game was Iliad by International Team, which she received for her 10th birthday. Her first design was Le Droit de la Lance, The Law of the Spear, a PBEM multiplayer game. That was followed, of course, by the much-anticipated coin volume 8, Pendragon. We opened the podcast discussing the recent changes in her life, the design of her coin game, Pendragon, 
and her work in progress, the game Hubris. Well, first, uh, let me thank you, Harold, for inviting me here in, in San Diego. It's been, uh, I mean, it's been a, a great three days. And um, I mean, the location, the people mainly, it's because uh, as many people have said yesterday, I mean, it's, it's really about the people and who we meet and who we play with and talk with. Um, and so it's been a great time. Uh, and thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. This has been something I've been looking forward to for some time, as you know. Um, and I would actually start by, because in France, it's a tradition when you are invited to, um, to, to have a, a gift. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually found this book uh, in Brittany uh, this summer when I was with my family. And uh, I immediately thought of you because uh, uh, I don't know to what extent you can get the French, but I I'm sure you can you can find a way. It's really about the apparently the, the the involvement of a number of people from Brittany, so Bretons, into the war of independence. Uh, and I'm I'm kind of pretty sure that books you don't have. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know well, you've this, got this quite an extensive. <laughs> this certainly collection. is an American history book that I don't have, and yeah. and at least I know who to call when I have questions about. Sure, uh, oh, of course, understanding <laughs> the French. Thank you very much. So very you very kind of you. You find Thank some you. stuff of interest in there. Absolutely. Um, but that's yeah. So very kind of you. Uh, that's that's really what I wanted to start with. So, so yes. So uh, thanks again, and I I indeed. Um, as you mentioned, I used to be known as Mark, and uh, I, I, it's no longer the case. And um, and the reason is because I'm transgender, and I uh, started my transition officially in June of this year. And I would say probably in a perfect world, uh, that would be enough, and we would just uh, stop at that and, and move on to more interesting matters. Um, but it's also the case that, unfortunately, we hear so many things, which most of them being... Uh, just out of ignorance or, or, or deliberate lies or, or whatever. Um, even the current administration is trying to erase the very concept of transgender uh, from, from government. That, uh, and we talked about that, I think it's uh, a good opportunity maybe to share a little bit of my experience, and it's only my experience, uh, but if it can help some of us to better understand what this is, what this is about, and and how they can, you know, just be a little, be more aware of what it is, and if it can help some people, I feel that it will not be wasted. That so would be um, terrific. Um, so, so really, the uh, the the main thing uh, that we should uh, we should consider about that is that it's, you know, for people not familiar with what transgenderism is, in a nutshell. Um, I'm born in a wrong body, meaning my brain, my mind, for some reason, is that of a woman, even for my body, is, and you can <laughs> testify to that, undoubtedly genetically male. A and obviously that seems very hard to conceive, and I, I have many friends telling me they just cannot conceive it, and I understand that. I don't think you can fully understand it if you, I even cannot fully understand it. So, um, but But I think the important thing is that you know, this is not a perversion, this is not a sexual fantasy, this is definitely not a choice. I mean, nobody would choose that, believe me. Um, it is a medical condition, but a medical condition that is now widely recognized, that is better and better known, thankfully, even for most remains to be understood, um, and that's a military condition. Um, 
sorry, a medical condition that can be treated. So um, what happened? Well, we're not sure, but somehow, I mean, at some point, something went off script. Uh, and when I developed in the belly of my mother, my brain uh, became female where my body was male. <laughs> and, uh, and that's about how we can say about that. Um, now, if like me, you grew up uh, in the 20th century, uh, at a different, you know, different times, uh, very little was known about this type of, uh, of condition. And what little was known was very negative, uh, very caricatural in many ways. So if like me, I mean, you ambition to have a good life, uh, to have, uh, you know, a family, children, a good career, friends, etc., that was just unthinkable. So like many of us, uh, at least in my generation, in this case, I denied, uh, I refused, I tried to bury it, and for the most part I did, um, until I couldn't. And um, it was always a weight, more or less conscious, but it was always on my mind. And, um, and for me the tipping point came during the summer of last year, more or less. And um, that led me eventually to consult a specialized therapist in the spring of this year. Uh, and, and when the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, for to use the medical terms, came, I was terrified. I was, I was, um, you know, even if it was not entirely uh, conscious, uh, this fear that I'd been with me uh, all my life, that if that came to be known, if that came to happen, my life would simply end as I knew it, um, well, it was about to happen. So, um, very fortunately, uh, I'm married probably to the most wonderful woman in the world. And, um, and once she digested the shock, um, my wife and my kids supported me fully. And, and that allowed me to finally accept who I am, who I truly am, and to I began officially my transition last June. Now, as I said, I'm incredibly lucky, and uh, uh, not only did my family support me entirely, but so did my colleagues and business partners and my friends. I even get to be interviewed on your <laughs> podcast. So, <laughs> um, but but uh, what I want to stress is that not everybody is so lucky. Unfortunately, there are still way too many uh, trans people of every age and, and gender and um, uh, nation, whatever, who suffer exclusion, rejection, isolation, many of them leading them to depression, distress, to way too often suicide. So this is a real issue. Um, again, I count myself extraordinarily lucky, not everybody is. So, and a lot of that comes from simple, you know, lack of awareness, ignorance. We still don't know very much, or we still see that as kind of a marginal phenomenon, bizarre person doing bizarre things. So um, that's why I thought it was important to um, uh, share that, uh, if only because, I mean, uh, I don't know how many people know of me, you know that Pendragon is out, but some do. Right, <laughs> right. And, and uh, I tried to be uh, just as present on um, social media to, to ensure that there was a good, a good uh, follow-up to the game uh, as could be, uh, even for some of these times where uh, it was quite taxing. Um, but um, so I, to some extent, I think I owe an explanation to, to people who know me or follow me. Uh, well, at very least, people will be interested and want to be supportive. 
Yeah. And, and as we discussed, we encounter, That has been my experience so far. Which is terrific. And we encounter so few in our lifetime people that are transgender. Uh, it, is a, it, is, it's a, it is a challenge to understand and to be empath- empathetic uh, to, to, to the extent that we want to. So, so it's, it was, it's been a joy talking to you the last two or three days and, and educating me. And I appreciate your, your bravery and your willingness to talk about this um, and to talk about it on a public forum like this. Yeah, so that's, that's the way I try to, to live my life today. And, and as if it was no big deal and that nothing changed. But that's not true because, because in many ways everything changed. Um, but it's obviously my, my ambition, my, my, it's, I mean, that's what I need. I mean, I need to, to keep and maintain everything I've, I, I've built and, 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 and gotten in my life. And um, it's, uh, it's very important, obviously, uh, whether it's my family, my job, my friends, my hobby. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I, I would like to simply, you know, um, mention something that my wife uh, keeps telling people when, when asked about that. It's, and it's, um, well, you know, the important thing is the person inside. The external envelope, okay, it's, it's not unimportant, but that's not the key thing. So if you cannot recognize that, too bad. And, and she actually said that of people who were very dear to her. So, well, I, I loved her before. I love her even more <laughs> for that, obviously. <laughs> but, but I think it's, it's, it's the thing. And uh, yes, I have changed in many ways, and I feel much better in many ways. But the essential person is the same, I think. Um, hopefully, simply, you know, happier <laughs> and, and better balance, and uh, and certainly freer of mind. Uh, because even if I did not recognize it entirely at the time, I had a tremendous weight on my mind all that time, and at time it could be it could be absolutely paralyzing. And um, and maybe this will lead us to uh, uh, the next conversation, but. Uh, that uh, the, the funny thing is that even for s- beginning the transition, obviously, is a, is a huge undertaking. And there are still many, many challenges, whether they are you know, legal, medical, social, ahead of me. And they do take a lot of my time. At the same time, I have been able to resume start, resume work, sorry, on my current or new design after I took that decision to transition. I recovered the mental energy and, and I call it the bandwidth to be able to again invest myself to a large extent into a creative project, something which I hadn't been able to do for nearly a year. So, right, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's I think, uh, something but. Um, Morgan, I, I, you know, I, I have a, I have a thousand questions, uh, which we'll have to explore <laughs> over the next several years, I think. Um, but but you've helped me to better understand uh, the transition and and the origins of the transition. And um, you know, once again, I'm I'm, I'm impressed uh, and, and extraordinarily impressed by your by your bravery and your willingness to talk about it and to educate. Uh, so we appreciate it. You know, if I can help just one person, <laughs> but this right. will have been time well used, I think. Absolutely. So. And, and it's great news to all of us gamers that your, that your uh, mental bandwidth 
has uh, well, fully, has yes. expanded <laughs> because uh, uh, Pendragon uh, has been so well received. Oh and, yes, it and, was uh, my group. Amazing. <laughs> my group in San Diego uh, loves to play it, and uh, the the layers uh, that you provide us with in Pendragon are extraordinary. And I feel like I've only scratched the surface. So um, here at the convention. We, yes, we you saw a, a large group from the San Diego Indeed. Wargamer Club. Hey, quite impressive group, that, I must that's say. Good, good to hear. And uh, but uh, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about the challenge that uh, you and Volko faced. Yes, so maybe um, just just to, to 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 recap a little bit what we uh, what we foolishly committed to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, someone came up, and I think it was Volko, but I, I really agreed to it, so I have to share the blame. <laughs> Um, to, to essentially sort of uh, uh, try to emulate or, or, or uh, go you know better one better than what Mark Herman <laughs> did last year with Plan Orange uh, and take on all comers on, on Pendragon. Obviously, uh, this is a four-player game, so it's a bit different um, in the format. Uh, so we had a total. We actually had eleven players because we had none other than Mark Herman actually uh, among the initial ten who faced it at five simultaneous tables of Pendragon. Uh, and I think he was really, really uh, looking forward to do it. And he had a good fun while he, he could be at the table, which was only, unfortunately, for part of the, of the time. You're, you're very polite. He talked a great deal of smack <laughs> before, before but the... I uh, guess that's his way of having fun. Yes. <laughs> and we had fun. So, so that's fine. And, um, and I can talk smack too, even <laughs> if it's not... Probably I should stop now. It's not very ladylike. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, so we had someone else taking over for him after that. So we had a total of 11 persons, five games uh, in, in, in real time in parallel. Yes. Yes, this was the first card. Oh, sorry, I'm not looking at the right card. I took the event. Oh, you took the event. Okay, I see. Okay, I'm going. Uh, I'm going to red too. Uh, so I'm going full red. So four reds, uh, cost of one each. Here, so I'm, I'm spending four resources. I'm going to do a surprise here. Let's go. Uh, so. Starting here, throwing two dice. Eight. Eight, yes. <laughs> so we get eight raiders. I plunder one because it's a pop one region. Um, so it goes down by one. Do you stay outside or do you go in? I'm going in. So, okay, so I tried a surprise. So you got one unit in, so you are missing three, so I roll four or less and I managed to, to, to surprise you. One, it's good. So there is no escalate. So you get the two intrinsic plus the garrison, so you kill three, and I kill everyone. So I plunder an extra three. Uh, I don't know where you've got the extra uh, I was playing the Scotty faction at every table and Volko was playing the Saxons and I must say he insisted on playing the Saxons uh, which is fine with me <laughs> but anyway uh, and it lasted for I would say something like uh, nine hours because we started around nine and the we games stopped were set up for the most part at nine o'clock right and we right. stopped at six and we did not break for lunch uh, we had sandwiches and we kept playing and 
I just realized, yes, it was nine hours, which explains a little bit why <laughs> the last two hours when I was probably not at my best, uh, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, it and was... We lined, we lined two tables up in parallel. Right, we were in the middle. So we had like two games on one side, three games on the other. Uh, and I know you, you like to point out, but that's very true. But we started the day all standing <laughs> and darting the from one table to the, the other. The barbarians <laughs> were standing. Right. And then uh, we, by midday, <laughs> we were moving chairs around so we could, <laughs> we could sit. Morgan, you raise your time, baby. <laughs> I've noticed that the barbarian horde is seated more often than not, as yes. opposed to at the beginning of the game. <laughs> When the barbarian horde was standing. That, that's just a, a problem with the ergonomy, you know, the tables are too low. <laughs> <laughs> you need bar tables. Yes. So uh, what's, the, what's the status of this game, Morgan? Well, I've been hunted out of this map a couple of times. Uh, the last time was particularly painful here. Um, and, and Saxons have not been making any major headway in the south. So Volko has been imploring me to play my Conspiratio Barbarica event, and I just said yes. Ah, excellent. So this is going to be the fourth, third or fourth Conspiratio of today. So, uh, no, it's, it's bizarre because I've got, quite often, that's actually something which happens a lot with the Scotty. I've got three great cards in play, and my board position stinks. Really? Yeah. And it tends to be that way. If you kind of over-commit on cards, I mean, that's all actions you don't take. Right. And so, uh, but, but these cards were just too good to pass. Right. So hopefully, at some point, I mean, my renown is not too bad. It's, the problem is that I have nothing on the map. Uh, and hopefully these will pay your dividends late in the game. They should, yes. yes. They should. This has been fun. This is, this is uh, one of my favorite cards in the world game, Nayal Nayagate It's... It allows you, it's essentially you've got the hiking in Ireland, which allows you to, to sort of organize your raids. Because the big thing with the raiders and the barbarians in general is that you never know. You, 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 you send raids and you never know how strong they're going to be, right? Now, see here, I've got this build-up here and I'm going to do more of that. So if I want to take a place, I can. Uh, no, it was. It, yeah. I would say it was a very rich experience. Uh, you, I mean, I've never done anything like that before. Obviously, uh, it's it's a pleasure to spend time with ten, eleven players at the same time. Even for, I mean, there's many of them. I wish, and I, I had a couple conversation after the game, like. We really need to play together sometime because I would really like to spend, you know, like the, the full time in direct interaction nonstop. Uh, so you don't get that to the same level, obviously, but you do get quite a bit. And um, we didn't do it that well, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Out of five games, we only won two, uh, which, which, as far as I'm concerned, is below the grade. <laughs> uh, I take some pride of uh, being the lone bar barbarian auto victory, <laughs> yes. um, but uh, but the truth is that uh, we had we had some very good players uh, against us. Uh, it was a challenge to play five games in parallel, f of course. Uh, I like to think we would have done on average a bit better if we had been able to focus on one table. But uh, my, my main, obviously, uh, the main aim was that. This had to be an interesting event, a fun event uh, that the participants had 
you know, an interesting time. And from what I've seen, I think they had. So uh, hopefully that's uh, that's the case. Um, we, I mean, I don't want to get into the the report again. So I don't know if you want to, to mention well, some of that. But maybe you've, you talked about the summary of the win yes. losses. So. Yes. So yeah, no, it was. It's probably not the the best way to play Pendragon to play five at at a time. Uh, even for you do get to see a lot more events than you usually do in <laughs> one sitting. Um, but uh, but I think it was a it was a great opportunity. It was a it was probably one of the centerpieece of the of the con, uh, which had many of these. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was fun. It was it was it was great fun for the participants. It was fun for all of us to watch. Yeah. Uh, and 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 as you mentioned, the barbarians started off on foot and running between tables, and by the end, the crawling from crawling one, from one to, to the, the other, other. With, with various <laughs> means of support. So, uh, I, I, I and can't some imagine. of the players were ruthless in like. I had at least one player actively suggesting we let him win a lot of victories so we had one table less to worry about. To worry about. <laughs> to worry about. That's very thoughtful. But we didn't do that. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's the negotiation that we've learned to love in the of coin course. system, of course. Of course. Right? Yeah, so uh, it, was, it was fun, and, and it was fun for the group. We, we uh, actually had a, me- a meeting, at the last club meeting. We got together and put up two games, and right. then we sat around and debated and talked about how and what and where, and it's good to see that that paid uh, dividends. Yeah, I mean, you've got some, some I would say, very smart players, and then, yeah, with the, some information, they became, <laughs> they became some ferocious <laughs> yes, opponents. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Pendragon has been uh, very well received. I'm, I'm sure you're proud and excited. I'm extraordinarily proud. I'm but I'm mostly surprised. I mean, I or shocked. Uh, I, um, you know, I've only designed a game on this period because there was there were none. I mean, the only game really covering that period was Britannia, and that was only a small portion of Britannia. And so, j- just like everything I work on, uh, I'm designing the games that I wish to play that don't exist. So. Um, did I ever imagine there could be such an interest for such an obscure period? No. Did I think there would be decent interest? Yes. Yes, because I, I do think this is a, a linchpin period of history. You know, the changing from one world to the next and understanding, you know, that it's not as simple as sometimes we perceive it or it was taught to us, etc. But did I? You know, I mean, I uh, I don't want to boast, but I mean, we 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 made the P500 in 25 hours. Uh, I think we are still to this day the third highest uh, subscribed P500 in GMT history games. Um, no, I would never ever have dared imagine that. Uh, I remember when we broke P500, I got I got an email from GMT. And um, that was the day after uh, we, we it was it was uh, listed, and I was actually sitting at dinner with my wife because it was Valentine's Day, <laughs> <laughs> and I checked that. I said, "You will not believe this." <laughs> 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 so um, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's a shock. Um, extremely proud, of course. Uh, I recognize that a lot of that is that um, it is the coin series, which is a, a fantastic 
fantastic series, fantastic game engine. Uh, so, I mean, you work in this series. I mean, so I owe to you. I mean, you have been part of what made the series so well known and, and, and appreciated. But obviously, we all brought <laughs> to Volko Runke, who's, uh, who's really someone I have tremendous um, appreciation for as a human being and, and as a game designer. And, um, and so that's a big part of the success. Uh, GMT Games, obviously, is another big part of its success. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I stay modest, I guess. Uh, probably uh, my next design is not going to be uh, <laughs> a coin series. I will not be Volko uh, directly involved. Uh, hopefully, it will still be GMT Games. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I suspect the numbers will probably be uh <laughs> a bit more challenging to get. The, the the victory conditions in Pendragon yes. uh, can move depending right. on on various conditions in the game, and I find that mechanism so so interesting. Yes, and and you know as I think about how do I understand the game, that's one of the things I understand the least now, <laughs> but I'm most intrigued by. Yes. And and it is on my you know <laughs> every game right I, I need to figure this out and I need to figure this out I, that's that's the one that I'm most excited about so I would love to hear you talk about how what the genesis of that was and how that's changed over your design horizon right um, one of the key features which was in the game from the very beginning is the time span of Pendragon. Um, I believe before that the longest span must have been somewhere in the region of uh, eight years. Um, Pendragon spans 150 years, if not more, because dates are a bit fuzzy and, you know, records are not that good. So obviously we had to deal, you know, an awful lot of things change in 150 years, especially when the key subject of the game is how you change from something which was a province of the Roman Empire into barbarian kingdoms, right? Or, or semi-barbarian. So very early on, I knew I had to account for this evolution. It was, it was an intrinsic part of the design. And it was probably one of the key uh, things that drove me to, um, to design this game. So how did it come to be? It's, it was a mix, to be honest. Um, part of it was trying to reflect, okay, what are the key priorities of each faction over time? Because they shift. A good example is the Dukes faction. So the Dukes represents, um, I would say, the, the official authorities. Uh, initially, they are like the provincial authorities and the military command of the Roman army in Britain. Uh, as the game develops, and as the ties break with Rome, and then as the islands descend into fragmentation, they become like local emperors, uh, and then they become basically chieftains who have at their disposal all the experience and equipment of the Roman army. Warlords, <laughs> in effect. But, but that shift, so that means their priorities have to change. What is important for them when they are the Roman administration in Britain cannot be the same uh, that when they are, uh, you know, one of several warlords vying for supremacy over at least part of the island. Um, so, so I had to recognize that. Obviously, it's a model, so you have to use some proxy. Um, so, for instance, uh, stability is, is not a parameter in the game, so it was the proxy for that is the prosperity of the island. Uh, so that came fairly quickly, just like for every other faction. You try to assess, okay, what's important for them? Um, I, 
I often tell this story. I actually, um, you know, the way I work is I tend to, I, I'm very much a top-down thinker. So I tend to <laughs> conceptualize things a lot and then, and then I, I, I start working out the details. So uh, Pendragon, I had been thinking about it. I had been thinking that the coins system would be a, a good um, engine to model this period um, for some time. But it all sort of clicked <laughs> during, a, you know, I was living in a Bay Area uh, uh, in California at the time, uh, and, and it's infamous for its uh, <laughs> traffic jams. <laughs> and so it all clicked during a long, particularly long drive on the way back home from the city. And so I, I went home and I just dumped uh, the key concept of the game on one piece of paper, letter format, and I still have that piece of paper, and it shows the four factions their main interactions and their main objectives. And, and I found it useful throughout the life of the design and development to come back to this one piece of paper, you know, when, whenever I was wondering, okay, should we go that route? We, because it, it sort of encapsulates the key, as I said, key interactions and key objectives of each faction. Um, and I'm and I'm actually, or it, it may be because I went back to it, but I would say probably at least 90 to 95 percent of what is on this piece of paper found its way into the final release form of the game. So uh, that's the top-down thing. Yes, <laughs> yes. But so so I captured things like that, you know, like the Kiwitates, They represent the landed elites of the. Romanized uh, Britons, so they want to retain their standard of living, their wealth, and their land, and that uh, that is captured through control and wealth. Um, the, the the dukes want stability; they want to retain control, uh, but there are also the military, so they want to you know, military victories help them help their standing as well. So this represents the initial condition for them. Obviously, as as the island sort of shifts into fragmentation. Stability doesn't mean any, uh, anything anymore, uh, and so control becomes important. Because if you if you notice at the end of the of the day, control is the only thing that matters, except for the Scotty, uh, and so on. I mean, the, the the barbarians wanted renown because you know they are raiding. So the the purpose of that is to bring back look looked and reputation and whatever, so they can increase their standing at home. That's the initial thing. Uh, but then the Saxons are a bit different because the Saxons want to settle. So then they get into a direct confrontation with the Kiwitates over land, something which is really the, the main axis between these two factions, uh, and so on and so on. So these key concepts were in the game from the very first day. Of course, <laughs> as you well know, uh, a ton of things that went into you know fine tuning and, and making it work and wealth in particular for the uh, for the Kiwitates was a, was a bone of contention for a long time before we found something which which finally worked um, but but a lot of things were were pretty pretty okay for instance one of the things I wanted from the beginning and that was the main bone of contention between Dukes and Kiwitates was that. The Kiwitates represented, as I said, the landed elites, so landowners and city elites. So they are the ones who bring revenue. The authorities tax. They take what they need. So I wanted this tension. Um, 
the elites want autonomy because they want to have control over their own <laughs> finances. Not very different from <laughs> <laughs> some other <laughs> situations we know. Um, the, on the other hand, the military and the official authorities, they've got, they've got a job to do, which is to maintain the authority of the empire and to protect the island as a wall. And for that, they need resources. So it's only natural for them to go get the resources from the people they protect, right? So, so that was true. Um, essentially, my mechanism was like, okay, one, one of the faction accumulates resources and wants to sort of try to save as much of these resources as they can. The other faction uses them. So that creates a natural tension. Uh, but it took some time because the, you know, resources is a very fluctuating uh, parameter in coin games. So it didn't make for a very good victory condition. So I know of only, I think, a distant plane where one of the factions actually used resources as one of his victory conditions. Um, so that did not work at the beginning. So we had to find some other way. And I, and I tried a, a number of various systems before we settled on what we have today. Um, wealth used to be more of a, initially it was just something you put on the side and that was just a, a measure of your victory. And over time, the concept of wealth became richer and started to encompass a number of other elements, including some elements which were a little bit like prestige or whatever. And now uh, they are a way for the Kiwitates to revolve with the Dukes, in many ways, are a way to actually get uh, their own warbands, which are called comitates in the game. Uh, so there are many usage to, to wealth, which makes it both more interesting and puts a lot more tension on it. <laughs> because it's just not something you accumulate to build up your victory level, but you actually have contradicting tensions. Uh, you know, you, you want to put some on the side, but you actually need it for, for a lot of other things. So um, all these, um, you know, checks and balances and various uses developed over time, uh, undoubtedly. So the, the game has, the game tells a natural story over time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is so interesting, and I, I just wonder how that influenced your card selection. I mean, the, the system is, the, the, the system is working at the beginning of the game, right? The long yes. Scenario. And so the system's If it weren't for these pesky barbarians. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then the pesky barbarians show up, right? Yes. Uh, seated or standing. Right. And, and, and standing so at the beginning. <laughs> that's right. And then you watch the system collapse. Correct. Over the course of the game. And it's a marvelous story. How, how do you think about that in the context of cards and phrasing? Well, um, uh, at several levels, um, I had this sort of basic model, whereas the, the system, as you say, works in the beginning, but it works in certain conditions. If you put too much stress on it, uh, it just cannot cope. And, and actually, one of the main approaches the barbarians should use is to go after the economic foundations of the Britons to diminish and then potentially actually <laughs> nearly eradicate their ability to wage war. So for instance, uh, quite often, and we probably will talk about raids later, but, but many, I would say, novice players, when they play the barbarians, they will look at the raids and they will look at the likelihood of the raids being successful in the sense that they will be able to bring back the loot, the plunder. And they will look at that and say, eh, <laughs> They're not very good, 
So should I actually waste my time, my renown, etc., doing that? And every time I point out, you know what? Even if you don't bring it back, in every single case, you're going to do damage to the prosperity of the island. The prosperity is what generates revenue. If there is no revenue, there is no money to muster or train new units, there is no re money to rebuild the fortresses, there is no money to conduct operations. Comments. So, even if it looks like you wasted your raids because you did not bring much back, or even anything back, you hurt them. If you keep hurting them, it will show. And it's a common mistake by, by young uh, new players to the game, as barbarians, to sort of shy back from their initial raids, which are typically, especially if you're the Saxon players, thrown back with appalling <laughs> losses. <laughs> but I mean, the, 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 the game is built like that, because that was the reality initially. I mean, the, the Saxon short system was a very effective system, as long as you can fund it. So it, it takes... I keep saying that, you know, you, you've got to keep hammering at it. Because if for some reason you start standing back and wait for good events and or some kind of, you know, something is going to happen that will allow me to get in, or maybe the other barbarian is going to bring so much, you know, attention to, to, to himself that I can get in, you are most probably going to give the game away to the Britons because the status quo favors them you've got to ruin the island. And that's fairly easy to do. Making yourself rich by doing it is, takes a little bit more. <laughs> 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 but but it's, it, there's always these two dimensions. You know, these, and, and coin is a lot like that. You know, it's not only what you gain, but it's what you take from the other players. And a raid, third and first and foremost, is about taking things away from the Britons. And yes, you do need at some point to bring something back, if only, if only to fund your own comments later. But but um, but that first dimension is too often overlooked, and and was one of the key um, dimension of my initial design. Th and many people have actually pointed out, hey, Pendragon has a strong economic element, and I never thought of it really that way. But but it's probably true. It's probably true. You know, at the end of the day, uh, if you cannot fund war, there's no war. <laughs> um, but then the events, how did the events come into that? Um, my approach to events is that they should not be central to the game. They are important, but at least my understanding of the coin system is that the, the central aspects of it are the key comments and fits. And, and, and the events are bonuses. Now, there were some evolutions, and uh, that's the beauty of games that use cards, whether they are CDGs or, or coin system or whatever, is that you can capture a lot of changes to the, to the rules through cards. Uh, and, and since we had a lot of changes to care of within Pendragon, there had to be some evolution through through the cards. So for instance, there are four, uh, I call them the uh, list of battles cards. Uh, there's one for each of the faction, which gives them a very, a fairly strong, not very strong, fairly strong military capability. So these are Kaya Legion for the Dukes, 
uh, Mons Batonicus for the Quiritates. Um, uh, of course, I'm going to blank. Uh, Dub Glass River for the Saxons and uh, Coit Coliden for the um, for the Scotty. They are all named after one of the battles from the list of battles of Arthur in the list of Nennius, which is one of our few historical documents which actually lists Arthur's name. Um, so I knew I needed to, and they represent some capability that this faction acquired or developed. So that was an easy event. Uh, but apart from that, most of the events, I would say the first batch, where, and I, I did that for other games, is basically I, I go through, I, I always built a chronology of the period. And I populate it with what looks to me like, you know, key occurrences, uh, significant happenings, well, events. <laughs> and then I, I try to see, you know, can I make an event of that? Does it make sense? And then I, I sort of represent, okay, uh, so in this game we had, we had a lot of that, which was, for instance, all the federative mechanism to a large extent was tied to cards. Um, but that's how the first batch was made. So again, I had the list, uh, started balancing it between the various factions, because you have to have, obviously, all that perfectly <laughs> distributed. Um, but the list itself of cards was built for the first time <coughs> sorry, um, on the flight back from Paris to San Francisco. So that's an 11-hour flight, <laughs> which gave me all the time to go through it in a systematic way. Um, later on, then you, you evaluate some cards. You see some cards do not bring much to the game, so you discard them. Then you come up with new ideas, including some which came from playtesting. Uh, there's quite a few cards in the game which came from playtesting. Uh, so you have to find them room because you have only a certain number of cards. Um, but it's not that difficult in my experience to do. Uh, you compare it to existing cards. You're like, hey, this card more interesting to it. Uh, does this card lose me something I need? And, and then the choice done. Um, and so, uh, yes, that was... Uh, so I, I haven't kept count. I don't know how many of the original lists made it to to the published version, but I would say probably over 80%, something like that, yeah. But it's a long process. I mean, from, from the beginning of the work on Pendragon in, in the summer of 2014 to the time we finalized um, game components, which must have been, uh, let me think, uh, fall of 2016, probably. So that's over two years of, you know, development and testing and, and going back on some stuff. And so it's a process. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, the other interesting thing to me uh, is the relationships between the factions. And we can mm -hmm. talk a little bit about rating and but but it, a part of it comes from uh, you know playing the game and and, and uh, spending a lot of time myself between the the ducks and the kivitates right the, the in the relationship there but but most interesting watching you and Volko play right and uh, knowing that you're both barbarian factions trying to win to preserve uh, your status as a smart designer <laughs> and. Uh, but but at the same time, uh, it wasn't all wine and roses. I, there were some disagreements between uh, the oh, barbarian factions yesterday. Yes, most certainly. Um, 
I don't know if my primary objective was to win or uh, no, let's put it that way. My this it wasn't my topmost priority. My topmost priority was to keep the games going. I wanted to avoid an auto victory and that's standard coin approach really. Um that was fueled by the fact that in Pendragon, um as I explained somewhere else, the it tends to be that both barbarian factions are playing the long game. Uh, it's ex it's very difficult to win early as one of the barbarians. Uh, but if you can, you know, have the game going to the fifth or sixth epoch or to the final tally, then you are usually in a very good position. Usually. So I knew that if we kept the game going, uh, and as I said, pushed it to toward the end, there was a very strong likelihood we would win. B but most of all, I mean, I, I, to me, a game ending quickly, even if it had been on one of our wins, which was unlikely, to me was sort of uh, shortchanging the players and, and the audience. So I, I really wanted to keep the games going, uh, even though I had this long-term strategic view that <laughs> 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 it was, for the most part, good for us. Um, and then we all, or obviously, I mean, we sort of try to to anticipate what sort of games we would face because, it, uh, as we said, it was just not a friendly game or not so friendly between four <laughs> players, uh, experienced or not, uh, and hacking it out for a number of hours. It was five games against the two creators of the game, so there was an element of challenge to it, uh, and we kind of anticipated that the the challengers would probably tend to sort of smooth over a bit more than usual the rivalries between the Britons uh, in order to make sure that the Bavarians would not win. <laughs> um, and I think we saw a little bit of that, uh, to be honest. And that's, and that's okay. At the same time, the, the amount of interaction between the two Bavarians, especially early in the game, is fairly limited. We start from opposite sides. So we don't have that many friction zones or we don't have that many overlapping interests. Uh, we can cooperate early on. There are some events which can benefit both or, or you can simply, as one barbarian, play an event that benefits the other and he did that a couple of times yesterday and I'm sure uh, Volko did it as well a couple of times. And so we, you can do that. Um, applying the general rule that what hurts the Britons benefits you, even if it's <laughs> the other side doing it. But but obviously you don't want the other barbarian running away with victory. Uh, and I must say that I was probably, so I don't know if it's me being naive, me being tired, <laughs> uh, Volko being more, <laughs> I don't know, but he opened the hostilities yesterday. <laughs> and, and, and you know, the first one I was like, oh, okay. And I, I think I, I did something just as a measure of retaliation, but you know, not too much. <laughs> And then I had like two more in succession, and then it was, it was, you know, the, the war was on. And then the funny thing is that actually the war was on on all five tables, even for, I think, the hostilities began on one, maybe two tables. <laughs> so you had this sort of um, contagion <laughs> effect. Uh, but uh, yes, we did, we did harm each other quite a bit over the, the last few epochs, yes. 
Uh, and I must say, he probably got the better on me on that because he started first. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He was responding every time. Yeah, but uh, I mean, that's that's okay. And it also shows that we came to a point where uh, we had free chances, which, which only happens during the mid to late game. Uh, but that's another thing, by the way, that players sometimes miss uh, initially when they play Pendragon, is how do you create the possibility to start adding interaction with the um, the other. Uh, I know that uh, at some point during the one of the games, can't remember which table, um, I played an event which was of medium interest to me, let's say even very limited interest in itself, but it it gave me the possibility to go and raid Saxon land. Funny. And I like that because yes. it gave me, you know, one lever to <laughs> <laughs> uh, if need be, to put pressure on. I think I did it once, actually, only. But, you know, it's it's there. You you have to create yourself some avenues uh, so that it doesn't just, you know, be a game where you have a common enemies. You have, you have at some point, you have to be able to, right. to take a direct hand. Right. No, I, I like the word frenemies. Yeah. Right, yeah. combination. Well, the thing with Volko is that uh, I... I think we can say with friends. <laughs> I certainly have all the esteem in the world for him. Every time we play together, for some reason, he's <laughs> <laughs> bloody. <laughs> it, it, and it's probably because we are both extremely, um, you know, uh, competitive players. Right. Uh, and, and there's and probably and an and element both, of both very competent as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, but well, Polko is for sure. But um, also when you spend so much time obviously working together at some point, it has to <laughs> to compensate. But uh, and I, I think I, I was telling you at some point, if we had switched it over and if we had played the, bar the, the two Britons and let the challengers play the Barbarians, which would not have worked by the way, because the two Britons require, uh, I would say, uh, a lot more consistency over time that, than, than the barbarians who are more opportunistic. Uh, but it would have been terrible because I'm sure we would have been at each of the throats right. <laughs> from, <laughs> from the get-go uh, and, and Britannia would probably have fallen very quickly on all five tables. <laughs> <laughs> so Pendragon is your first big design. Uh, design but, yes. but, 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 but frankly... Uh, you were working on something else before Pendragon. Yes. Uh, that wasn't that that you then moved to Pendragon. Correct. And focused on, and I see it here. It uh, is here. Hubris and uh, uh, fantastic ancients again, and uh, would love to talk to you a little bit about. What we were yes, about and that. it's uh, it's I guess it's an interesting story time-wise in that um, I actually yes indeed I I. I Pendragon was not my first idea of, of a game of this scale. Uh, and it started with Hubris, uh, which is a game about the uh, rivalries uh, between the Hellenistic kingdoms, so, you know, the Ptolemies, Seleucids, Macedon, uh, roughly around the, you know, second half of the first century BC and first half of the, of the second, uh, which is about a century after the death of Alexander the Great. So about 50, 60 years after the end of the what, what I call the successors' wars, where his generals fought for over 40 years to split among themselves, which, which is an absolutely fascinating subject in itself, and I most definitely will do a design on that someday. Um, 
I actually have quite a few concepts already, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, so it's a time where you know things have a bit settled, and it's a, it, it takes a little bit more the form of a classic you know major power rivalry, um, because you have to understand that at the time, at least in their perception, there are no r rivals in the world. This may tr be true or not be true, but that was their perception, and so uh, but that's also. Again, one of these sort of uh, you know hinge times where things change. So we move from this Greco-Macedonian world then to the Roman world because this is the time of the Second Punic War, out of which emerged a superpower in the Western Mediterranean, which is Rome. Might have been Carthage, who I think Carthage would probably have had a different um, attitude, but and then obviously Rome moves east. And historically, one after another <laughs> crushes each and every of these Hellenistic kingdoms and turns the whole area into a part of the Roman Empire. Uh, and turns itself, by the way, into the cultural continuation of the Greco-Macedonian world, which is another fascinating subject. Uh, so that's the subject, and that's something which I have always been, just like I have a fascination for the, um, the Celtic world, I have a big fascination for the Hellenistic world. Uh, and so hubris was my first design, and it started life um, quite different from what it is today. Um, but it was the first one which, for some reason, I actually turned into a playable prototype uh, around, I think, the summer of 2013. Uh, and I presented it to GMT back uh, at GMT West Weekend uh, in October of that year. And there was some interest. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to say, but obviously not enough to say, oh yes, we want this game and we're going to put you on P500. Uh, and the truth was that I was an entirely unknown quantity then. Uh, so I, I worked hard and I, I had a lot of playtesters. Uh, the game was played in Hanford uh, quite a few times. I had uh, local players in the, in the Bay Area, which I want to, to thank because I mean they were extraordinarily I mean, good friends and, and very useful in getting this uh, developed. Uh, and, um, and I I think the game came to a point where it was fairly polished, it worked fine, uh, and it was ready to you know, have a developer and move to the next step. Um, but then, this is when I got the Pendragon ID, <laughs> nearly a year later. And then, by a complete happenstance, uh, I happened to get in touch with Volko, and Volko hears that I am working on something which could be a con design and asked me about it, and I tell him about it, and he said, I want to see it, and, and the rest is history. Uh, but initially, it was quite, um, how can I put it, even annoying, because here I had a design which was essentially ready to go into final development uh, that many players liked, and on the side, I had a concept which was just, you know, barely born. <laughs> 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 and, and that one had a path to publication, and the other didn't. And someone, uh, John Woodruss, uh, that you may know, told me, uh, you know, if you have an opportunity to get whatever published, and in this case, it's, it's Pendragon, and you've got vocal support, so it's a very good chance, do it. Because once you've got something, everything else will become easier, whether within GMT or others. And he was right. 
so after P uh, Pendragon was completed, which took the better part of three years, when you factor in everything, including uh, final proofing of documents and, and, and the like, um, I actually met Mark Simonich during the um, uh, Stack Convention in uh, May 2017 in Montreal. And, um, and Mark saw Hubris in its then current form and confirmed that they were interested. And so I said, okay, I'm going to look again at the design and say, okay, what do I need to do to, to get it? But three years had elapsed <laughs> and Pedragon had happened and I had learned a ton. And I guess I had changed myself in many ways. So, so the more I looked at Hubris, the less I liked it in its form. I still liked the theme, I still liked what I was trying to achieve, but I thought, yeah, it's great, but there's a couple things I think it's lacking. F for instance, all the aspects on the leaders, I think, was completely underrepresented. Um, and I think it was an essential part in any game in this period. Um, so you had more advanced tools available. Yes, I, had, I was probably a lot more sophisticated. Yes. And I learned so much by, you know, completing Pendragon and being exposed to entirely, to me, new ways of looking at things. Uh, something that the coin system does to you <laughs> as a player or as a developer or, or designer. Um, that I was like, eh, yeah, there's a couple of things I would like to change. <laughs> and as any designer will tell you, a couple of things Yahoo like to change quickly turns <laughs> into a complete <laughs> overhaul <laughs> of the game. Uh, and I launched into that and I was very aware of that and I, I kept in touch with Mark Simonich at the time and I kept him aware because I was like, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not going to be ready for P500 then, etc. <laughs> and then, I, as I mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast, I mean, I, I run into my own personal um, crisis, you might say, uh, and I just lost any bandwidth. <laughs> So, so I, I found it more and more difficult to find to find time to work on it. But at the same time, so I basically I put it on the side again. And when I reopened it in June, I had further progressed <laughs> into into my thinking because I guess there's always something sort of you know turning in the back of my head. Uh, so the game is is quite different today from what it was even two years ago, and certainly from what it was five years ago. Um, I think, well, I mean, at, at least I'm happy with what it is today in terms of the focus, in terms of what it represents and how it represents it. Uh, I mean, we had a couple of plays here, uh, which I think were quite positive in the way the model works. Uh, I also have work to do <laughs> because I think it plays a little bit too slowly. Uh, and, and we had an interesting discussion with Volko on that this morning because it's, you know, I am not on the school and people who have played P Pendragon probably noticed it. I'm not on the school that a game should be short by principle. I like a deep game. I like a multi-layered game. I, as a player, I mean, I, if I play a game and crack it, and you know, and I, I get it from the get-go, I'm probably not interested in playing it again. And that's not what I want to offer to uh, people who buy my games. Uh, I want them to be able to play it fast, and that's one benefit of being part of the coin series, 
my new game, I'm trying to keep the base mechanism as simple and, and intuitive as possible, but I certainly wish that it takes them multiple plays to start grasping exactly, you know, all the the world they are dealing with, all the interactions, all the layers, all the... Um, so, um, and, and in the case of Hubris, what I want, again, this is a period which saw tremendous changes. So I, I want to be able to cover s a time span, which is long enough that uh, I can show this evolution. So it cannot be a game where you only play a couple of years. It has to be a game where probably uh, you need at least 10 years covered in a, in a, in a scenario to, to start seeing things. Uh, so that means that I have to make sure that the pace of playing, uh, because the turn is a yearly turn, uh, is such that it is realistic, realistic to play 10 years. So this is where I have work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as we said, I mean, if we can sit, and I would definitely like to pick your brain yes. <laughs> on some of these yes. aspects. But some of our aspects, I think, work, work well. I mean, and the model itself works fine. So it's at least I, am, I have this good basis. And now it's the hardest part, which is what to cut without compromising the model. Right. Which is the biggest, uh, you know, in the end, that's the biggest challenge. I remember right. at some point on Liberty or Death, uh, I met with Volko and we talked about the game. And, and uh, he said, your job from here on is to take stuff out. Right. Right. And make that measure where you can, you can make the game more efficient and easier to play, but not compromise the tenants that you've set yes. up yourself. Yeah. And it's a very common thing. I mean, there's this saying which has been attributed to many people, which is like, you know, I'm sorry, I did not have time to write you a short letter. <laughs> right. It's it's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's good. Well, uh, we'll look forward to hearing more about uh, about hubris and, um, and, and love Pendragon. So, uh, if we can transition to some of the more informal things that I like to talk about on the podcast. Yes. would love to understand a little more about what you're reading. Right. Uh, and I read a lot, <laughs> at least as, as much as I can. Uh, I, I, I have... Um, I'm lucky to have a very extensive, well, I mean, some people will say it's stupid in the time of um, electronic books and it's everything, but I I do have uh, in excess of 2,000 books at home uh, and I love that. I mean, I, I find there is nothing like sitting among my books to, to, you know, this is knowledge and this is knowledge that you can touch and get access to in a way that I never feel I can when I have access to, uh, you know, an, uh, computer or, or, or a tablet. Uh, not that I don't use computer and tablet, I do that <laughs> all the time, every day. But, um, but books have, to me, it's, a, it's still a sacred quality, I would say. Uh, and I, 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 I like to think it's something that passed on from generation to generation. Uh, so I, I read a lot. As you can imagine, I read a lot of uh, history. <laughs> uh, not necessarily related to my current development field because I, ju I just love that. Um, for instance, one of the well, I, mean, I try not to have several books <laughs> ongoing at the same time, but I, I actually do at the time. Uh, so I, I currently reading um, a book from the um, I think it's uh, uh, Oxford series of history on the French Revolution, uh, which was recommended to me by, if I'm not mistaken, Richard Berg. 
<laughs> in a discussion. And, and it's not, you know, uh, I've already read a lot on the French Revolution before, but it's always interesting to, to see a tech from outside. Uh, and I find it very refreshing and interesting, both as to the fresh look it takes on yourself, but also what it reveals on that outside, how they interpret some things that they don't quite necessarily fully understand because they are working under some different assumptions. So that's, that's a very excellent book, I think. If I'm not mistaken, the name of the author is Doyle, I think, but I, I, I could check that. Later, if um, at the same time, I'm reading a book on the Hellenistic period, <laughs> uh, which I actually have with me, so I could even give you, <laughs> you the title. So I'm going to read that on the plane back. So it's in French uh, Les Mondes Hellenistiques du Nil à l'Indus, so the Hellenistic worlds, plural, uh, from the Nile to the Indus, uh, which is a, again, I mean, I've got, I don't know, I've got probably close to a couple hundred books on that period at home. But this one I find interesting because it draws on many different sources, including in non-Greek sources. Uh, there's a lot about the Babylonians and the Iranians in the Egyptian too, uh, as to what the impact and the, the way the administration function and you know that sort of thing. Uh, very interesting. Um, so, so I read that, but I don't only read history books. Uh, I, I read quite a lot of fiction. I read quite a lot of current affairs. Um, sometimes, when I am not too tired, I read some uh, economic books too. Uh, I, I do have an MBA after all, <laughs> <laughs> but but not so much. Um, so. Probably one of my most recent raids in fiction. Oh yes, I um, I have started again reading The Expense. I know it's a very popular series. Uh, I had read the first two books uh, fairly soon, and then kind of stalled at uh, the beginning of the third. And I resumed. Well, actually, I resumed roughly at the time I found back some of my bandwidth. I don't know if there was <laughs> a relationship <laughs> with that. So I've. I've read the third and fourth book uh, very fast during the summer, and I decided not to get into the fifth. I've got fifth and sixth ready waiting <laughs> because I, I wanted to get some historical reading done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I read a lot of sci-fi, uh, literary fantasy, historical fiction, that, that sort of thing. Um, that's about it, really. So what about video, TV, movies? What have you seen recently that you enjoyed? Yeah, um, well, you know, I've got a family with uh, middle-aged children, so, you know, 8 and 12. So um, uh, I guess we, we, we tend to tailor our, <laughs> our views to that. Uh, we go to the theaters uh, from time to time uh, as a family. I think the last, oh yes, the last one we saw was uh, Johnny English Strikes Again, <laughs> uh, which was a, I mean, it was a good watch, not as good as the first one, in my opinion, but the first one was just so <laughs> out of of the blue. Um, but I mean, we, we love Star Wars. I mean, we saw Solo. Uh, I know, for some reason, the movie seems not to have quite met expectations. I don't think it had been doing too good. Uh, I I liked it myself. It, it met my expectations. Yes, but, but yeah. uh, apparently uh, people more sophisticated didn't like it. I don't know. I mean, I, I must say, in the Star Wars series, uh, I quite liked the the one of movies recently. I found, I mean, Rogue One was amazing. 
it it may be my preferred Star Wars movies of of them all. Whereas Episode seven and eight, uh, okay, <laughs> but <laughs> they, no, I, I, I guess they did not meet my expectations of the Star Wars um, uh, franchise. But uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm um, I'm a big fan of uh, even you know uh, French comedy, uh, including some older movies like uh, classics like uh, uh, by Michel Audiard. I, I love the I love the dialogues and the lines from Michel Audiard. So be it you know Les Tontons Flingueurs or, or the like, The Barbouze. Um, I like modern comedy. I mean, I, I tend to prefer French comedy. I guess there's such a strong cultural element. It's uh, it's it's something. Uh, I like action films, I like this sort of films, so there I will probably more tend toward the American markets. I love, I mean, I, I'm a big James Bond fan. <laughs> um, historical movies, a lot, uh, even for every time I spend so much time just uh, bemoaning the uh, historical mistakes, inconsistencies, shortcuts, but still, I mean, I love these things. <laughs> um, what else? Uh, yeah, I'm not at all into, uh, and it's the same thing with books. Um, I'm not reading a book or I'm not watching a movie because I should. So if someone tells me, you know, this this movie or this book, you must watch it, you must read it because it's such a perfect form of writing, whatever. And okay, so what? You know, if the story is not interesting, what do I care? So some of my preferred movies. I'm sure uh, people will like, eh, <laughs> this is just an Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, but it was so well done. I like it. <laughs> uh, and I, I sometimes get that. I mean, we, we would go to the movies. We have no particular ideas what to watch. So we would, oh, let's pick this one. And then you get a good surprise. Um, so uh, that's, always, uh, that's always pleasant. Uh, we watch most of our movies at home. I mean, we've got, uh, well, I tend to, when I like a movie, I. I have the DVD or the Blu-ray, and I and I watch it again, and it's a great pleasure showing these movies to my to my children. It's uh, again part of, I guess, the transmission, and sometimes they are like, oh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but but sometimes it, sometimes they love it, so um, so it's, that's it's good. It's part of our communication to our kids is right. about who we are, right? Right. Um, videos. I mean, there's some series we love again, uh, historical content, fantastic content. Big Game of Thrones fan, obviously. Yes, of uh, waiting impatiently for yes. <laughs> for the last season, even for. I mean, I, I started by reading the books, uh, so so obviously, um, I mean the, the the TV series is not all the books are. Uh, and by the way, I think this is probably yeah one of the most fantastic series of written fantasy ever, just because it's so true. You know, I. I I still remember when I finished the first book, and uh, which is what a Game of Thrones, right? And um, and I thought like every other fantasy book, and, and pardon me, you know, American writer, that after all these travels and and you know, Ned Clark had put himself in such a Stark had put himself in such a situation that he should die, but that he would somehow get out of it, and then he dies. And I hope it's not a spoiler to anyone <laughs> on this <laughs> podcast. I doubt it is. But that's really when I had been enjoying the book. I mean, it's fast-paced, it's well-written, the characters are awesome. But that's when I really was hooked. Because, you know, when 
when a character places himself in a situation which is hopeless. A central character. Right. He should die. Well, <laughs> most of the time. Yes. And, and yeah, that was like, wow. It, it's, it set the tone. Yes. Right, and 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 from there on, you knew no one was safe. And then yes, and then it 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 sort of actually reinforces all the ties because you feel that much more for the characters because you know what next page they might be dead, <laughs> <laughs> and and so uh, yeah, no, I I found that uh, especially the first three books in the series are are, are just awesome, just awesome. Um, so TV series like this, what else we've loved. Uh, um, oh, one series I love is The Last Kingdom, which is based on the work by Bernard Cornwall, who, by the way, is one of my favorite uh, historical fiction writers. Um, he wrote a fantastic trilogy on Arthur, which, in my opinion, is the best historical fiction ever written on Arthur. Um, the Last Kingdom is based on the um, uh, Saxon Chronicles, which is, I mean, which begs for a game. I mean, seriously, we need to do <laughs> something. Uh, it's just, it's just incredible. Uh, he's, he's most well known for his series on um, uh, what's his name um, damn, on the Napoleonic uh, Wars. He wrote so many ga uh, books on that. Uh, that series, in my opinion, is a little bit too francophobe. Sharps, <laughs> um, yeah. But it's just, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic writer. He's, he's yeah, so... Um, I agree. So what about, um, what about music? What do you listen to? Yeah, music. Uh, <laughs> I knew you would be asking. <laughs> <laughs> and we've established you don't spend your audio time on podcasts historically. No, I don't. Yes. So I, I do listen to a lot of music. Right. Uh, that's kind of my, by default, ambient noise It's I, 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 with music. Um, I got, I guess... I. I have some very eclectic taste. Let's say I like a lot of things, except for some entire domains which I will not touch whatsoever. Uh, so these domains are mainly anything to do with jazz and blues and um, and rap, basically, and anything which is variations of that. Um, and I'm not saying this is bad. It's just that I don't like it. Well, rap, I think, is bad. <laughs> so, but anything else? I mean, so I listen to, um, uh, you know, music, uh, pop rock, and, and and actually some some you would probably classify as hard rock. Uh, my favorite band today, and and has been for quite a few years, is uh, again a very eclectic <laughs> band which is called Chaka Punk. Uh, I think they are classified as a French band, but that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, they've got in their group with people from Spain, from the UK. They live in well, they are when they are not on tour, they are in Berlin. Uh, and what they do is just uh, extraordinarily powerful in terms of energy and pace, and and, and it's very varied. They touch on, on, they use many things. They even use some stuff I would normally not listen to, <laughs> but. But it's it's just so you know when I listen to that it just re-energizes me uh, instantly and I, I tend to listen to that a lot.
but at the same time I really listen to classical music uh, I uh, I was kind of educated in that by my grandfather uh, I had to learn piano when I was young which I hated <laughs> but I still like uh, you know uh, classical music symphonic orchestra that sort of thing I don't necessarily listen a lot to to classic pieces. I do on occasion, like Beethoven is a big favorite of mine. Um, there are others, but I what I actually like a lot nowadays are um, uh, movie scores, because quite often they will use the very um, you know tools and methods and techniques of that, but obviously tied to a much more I would say dynamic and or even to a movie I like, typically. So I, I do listen a lot to these uh, to these um, movies. Recently, I for some reason I I saw again and I developed a, a <laughs> fixation on um, the two Sherlock Holmes movies by uh, Dave Ritchie. <laughs> uh, the band is by the the track is by uh, Hans Zimmer, if my memory serves me right, I think. And they are just they're just awesome. So uh, they, they were sort of the. the I stopped when the kids told me, I mean, we, we're just sick of listening to that every time in the car <laughs> at home. <laughs> so I can be a little bit <laughs> simple. Yes. What about games? Games that you like to play that aren't your own or your... Yes. Well, I like to play test. games. I, um, and <coughs> as I'm sure you know, when you are in the process of developing a game, you tend to uh, have no time for other games, which is really a pity and which I have always felt as something missing to my life. Um, so actually, during my that time where I was not ready to design, I did play, and I felt I, I, I mean, I guess to some extent I needed to play, and I, I purposely said, you know what, I'm going to play as many new games, and I had a stacks of new games that I had bought over the <laughs> development of Pendragon that I, I could I'd had no opportunity to play. So I did play a lot of new games uh, over the past year. Well, a lot, a lot more than <laughs> the previous years, um, and and I'm afraid that it's going to shrink again. But I still bought quite a few games here at the, <laughs> at the dealerships. Um, so recently, what have I what have I played? I think uh, probably the most recent game I've played, um, and I played a lot solo as as many. I mean, I've got a, a big gaming table uh, at home. And uh, I can leave a game standing, you know, for any period of time. Uh, and that's very convenient for developing a game, but that's also very convenient for playing a long game. So the last one I played was Eric Lee Smith's Battle Aim. Uh, and I played the full Gettysburg scenario. Uh, that was interesting. I think there's some, there's some great ideas in this system. There's a couple of things that I fin find strange. But overall, I had, a, I had a good time playing that. Uh, before that, I I am uh, very keen on Hollandspiel game at the moment. Uh, that took me by surprise. Uh, I mean, they are a fairly recent company, but uh, yeah, I've I've I must say I'm very impressed, extraordinarily ex impressed by the originality in their in their designs and in their subjects. And that's a big thing for me. Um, I I tend to be, you know. When the 250th game on the bulge, or you know, that is from battle or, or whatever comes out, I have a hard time feeling excited. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm missing on some great games. But 
you know, that as far as I'm concerned, some subjects have been done to death. And, and um, I can't find of the exception, like for instance, uh, In Me Action Ardennes by John Butterfield, who was here. I, I was actually talking with him about it the uh, day before yesterday. To me, he's one of the biggest surprise of the past year, which I played also, by the way. Uh, on the subject, I, w I could have sworn I would never play again. Uh, so yeah, you should. <laughs> you have to be careful not to be too uh, too sim simplistic. But but when someone comes up with a new subject or new mechanism or both, uh, and does it well, and does it in a, I must say, and, and that's kind of at odds with what I said about I, I'm not afraid of deep game and and multi-layered and long games. I must say that when I have a Hollenspiel game and I I can get quickly into the game and I can get the game done fairly quickly, that's not a bad thing either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but some of their recent designs, like I mean, supply lines of the American Revolution, are, are fantastic. Um, and I, maybe they are not classics in the chance, I'm, I don't know if we will be playing these games forever and forever, but they brought such a you know, a new take. Fresh, yes. Um, despite a title which is about the most untie marketing thing you could imagine, uh, that I was I was shocked. But they've they've done all the great games, and I'm really. I mean, I've got uh, I got a couple of theirs that I'm really dying to to see. Uh, Orange Peter has been one. What else? Um, well, since I still have something of a collection problem, <laughs> uh, I did buy recently the remake of Mark Herman's Next War, so um, under an iron sky, because I, I do like uh, World War Three games, <laughs> uh, and that game was just uh, too awesome to, to to let pass. So I, I actually bought it and paid the tax and paid the shipping. So it was <laughs> it was something good thing that I got some royalties from GMT. <laughs> But I mean, joking aside, you know, it's it's always that thing when you are, I mean, you have a household to run and, and whatever, you try to to be careful. And um, and now, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a nice way to have good games. And when my wife says another three games, I'm <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> I'm not touching our wedges. <laughs> right, that's my my wife says from time to time, I'll bring home games, and she'll say, don't you already have a lot of games? No. <laughs> Let's define a lot. Yeah. Let's define a lot. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to do the podcast. And uh, for me, it's been a great privilege to talk to you over the last two or three days about uh, your transition, but also to enjoy uh, Pendragon through your eyes and watch you play that with a group of people and to see your passion for the ancients and in a game that's so well thought out. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do the podcast and to come to the convention, and we had a great time. Well, Harold, as I said, thank you for inviting me. I mean, I um, uh, I know I haven't had that many opportunities to uh, go out and meet again with, with all the community, which is, uh, which is a shame. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you managed to um, sort of... Uh, kick me into <laughs> into breaking that cycle and uh, and I'm very happy you did uh, I've had a great time uh, I was very honored to be here and, and, and to be meeting you know the likes of Mark and Man and John Butterfield and, and I mean Volko and you I know already so um, I, I've had a great time I certainly very happy I'm here and um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the next opportunity
So that's a wrap for this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on Board Game Geek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. I'll close with a special thanks to Morgan. It's a pleasure to see her again. And that's it for me. As for me, I'm moved by Morgan's bravery and I'm praying for kindness and acceptance. And I'll be back soon. Thank you.